Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review. Without Nigel Farage, he's off to the jungle as you probably know about, but I am joined by South Bank Investor Researchers, Investment Director John Ballard. John, you decided not to go to the jungle this year. Why not? Well, to be fair, I wasn't invited, and even if I was, I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that that's my cup of tea anyway. I I think Nigel is far better suited to uh, to the challenges that await him. Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of people out there who've never watched this TV show before who are actually going to tune in now. So I think it's a, a bit of a master stroke on on the part of the producers, and I'll get their money's worth. Uh, let's move on to, to what we talk about, which is money's worth, I suppose. The big news story this week has been a load of inflation figures coming out from notably the UK, the US, and an interesting one from China. Uh, so I don't know which one of the ones you want to pick to start with. You take it away. Well, they're all interesting each in their own way. That said, the US and UK developments are, are very similar, whereas what's happening in China is somewhat different. So let, let's start with the US and UK, first of all. Uh, Look, you're seeing inflation come down pretty sharply now, and that shouldn't really be all that surprising because we've seen tightening monetary and credit conditions for essentially a full year in both economies. And indeed, the degree of tightening in money and credit conditions is historically very, very large. You have to go back many decades to see something comparable. And so we all knew that inflation was going to be coming down. The problem is, is that to what extent is that a good thing? Um, because it's coming down simultaneously with growth indicators coming up. And so it's starting to look like a classic recessionary set of economic data generally. So it's good news when viewed in of itself that inflation's coming down. But when you look at the bigger picture, it actually strengthens the case that we're heading into a recession in both the US and UK. Turning to China. Hold on, Hold on, John. From what you've just said, I had this vision of George W. Bush with the mission accomplished sign behind him on the aircraft carrier with you know the central bank is declaring, you know, inflation's under control. Meanwhile, they've caused the recession instead. Uh, we've sort of gone from from bad to worse. Um my question about this is I've I've borrowed money to buy a house, so my interest rate's gone up quite a bit. So it doesn't feel to me like inflation and the cost of living is falling. To me, it feels like, well, prices might be rising less for everyone else, but my cost of living as a borrower has gone up substantially. So I don't understand the idea that the cost of living's sort of going up less. Paul, to remind people that you know, lower inflation doesn't mean prices have come down. It means prices are going up at less of a rate. But my point being, the idea of reducing inflation by increasing the cost of living on borrowers seems like a like a pointless policy. It's just transferred the pain from one sector of the economy from one group of people to another. Well, this is the th this is the thing about aggregates, right? Uh, uh, economists are lazy like anyone else. They try to make their lives easier through simplification, and so they create these aggregates, uh, which apparently, you know, if you are if you're to believe them. Uh, do represent economies as a whole. But as you say, what they don't necessarily do until you start drilling down into those aggregates, they don't tell you what the impact is on specific sectors of the economy particularly well. 
then huge assumptions are going into this in any case. So you've given one example of a situation in which you don't feel uh, that your cost of living is falling at all. That said, somebody who owns their home outright uh, would, of course, feel differently. And in the UK, actually, a fair amount of the residential property market is uh, owned outright. And so you know, those people probably are, are indeed welcoming the fact that interest rates went up and that the cost of living is no longer rising at, at quite the rate it was. But it's this management of trade-offs, big picture and small, that central banks claim to be able to control to some extent, if not completely, and they set out uh, to bring the you know the aggregate CPI down. And, and as you say, they're probably patting themselves on the back currently claiming mission accomplished. But <laughs> when you start to look forward, it does look like we may end up in recession. Now, they might say, hey, that's that's the cost of bringing inflation down, much as, say, Paul Volcker would have argued in the early 1980s when he was doing something not completely dissimilar from what's happening today. Of course, politically, that doesn't necessarily go over very well. Hence why Milton Friedman and others always believe that central banks should operate independently. But yes, the idea that somehow inflation coming down is unambiguously a good thing for everyone, no, it's not that simple at all. And it's just a, a measurement issue as well. The fact that people's mortgages are not included in the inflation statistics, but consumer prices are, is, is just manipulation of the average cost of living. Uh, and there's another good example of that came from the US where uh, there was a bit of a furor about one of the particular numbers in the inflation report. It was a 34% drop in health insurance costs. Now, health insurance costs are a massive part of American people's budgets, and pretty much everyone agreed it was not falling to the 34% rate. What was really going on was a measurement error or a change in methodology. And it's a good reminder of just how dodgy these statistics really are. Yes, and you occasionally get these large backward-looking revisions. And then you have to wonder, well, wait a minute, all the policy decisions in the meantime were supposedly based on data that was what fundamentally flawed enough that it had to be you know, significantly revised going back months, quarters, years even. Um, it, it really does make you wonder sometimes. I, I have sometimes used the metaphor that trying to steer an economy with interest rates is like trying to steer a car while looking at the rear view mirror. Because everything that interest rates affect in the economy, of course, if you're using that as a lever, well, you're, you're, you're making those decisions based on data that is inherently backward looking. So you know, you're driving while looking through the rear view mirror, hoping that you stay on the road at a safe speed, etc. Um, that's a dangerous thing to try and do, no matter how experienced the driver is. That's, that's fraught with peril. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah, so it's no surprise we get too much inflation and recession on the side of that road that they're trying to steer along. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to then to the, the Chinese statistics. China is back in deflation. Yes, indeed. And this is where we really don't know quite what to expect because the Chinese economy has been driven by investment for years, including in residential real estate as well as commercial real estate, uh, all kinds of infrastructure. This has run up a huge, huge amount of debt in a very, very short period of time. 
That debt, of course, needs to be serviced. And if you end up in outright deflation, which China now appears to be tipping into, that increases the burden on those borrowers to be able to service and eventually, one would hope, pay down their debt. So now China is in a real pickle. The uh, investment boom bust is a classic case of uh, economic development. You go through periods of rapid growth, a lot of debts run up, and then there is inevitably at least a small bust. And so longer term, economies can grow, but they can grow in, in a way that can be very, very volatile as they develop. Uh, China is, in modern times anyway, the single biggest example of an emerging market that has now largely emerged, but with a huge debt burden and is now facing a period of outright deflation. We really don't know how that's going to play out. Is it going to play out kind of like Japan, where demographics combined with asset deflation has led to a prolonged period of relative economic stagnation? Or is it going to be a more spectacular blow-up, uh, something which the Chinese authorities can try to control, but ultimately will be unable to do so? We honestly simply don't know. There's a bit of news in Australia that the amount of millionaires immigrating to Australia has reached extraordinarily high proportions. I believe it might be one of the highest rates in the world. And most of this apparently is people from China moving to Australia in order to buy real estate. Um, so the, the, this exodus of Chinese wealthy people portends that something really is wrong in the Chinese real estate. Well, I mean, people do you know, vote with their feet, as it were, uh, not only when it comes to politics, but when it comes to economics. And in the case of uh, down under the, you know, the lucky country, um, obviously, you know, the Chinese being a historically bicultural tradition, a very superstitious people believing in fortune and luck to a great degree. Well, that, that must sound rather attractive, especially when you combine it with the relatively low population density in so much of Australia where nevertheless, there's a lot of economic opportunity. In China, the economic opportunity uh, is concentrated primarily in coastal areas. And as you start to move inland, uh, things are still relatively re relatively less affluent, of course. So there's all kinds of reasons why um, the Chinese would, would seek uh, to emigrate to Australia under these conditions. Yeah, I want to make it very clear that the part of Australia that Nigel is filming is a jungle show at the moment is very much not in the jungle at all. We would call it the bush, uh, sort of the countryside. So um, a bit of marketing there. Um, I want to ask you about two different stories about Germany because we both follow Germany quite closely. I think you speak German as well. The first story suggests that the nuclear industry in Germany offered to provide emergency power and to come back online, and they were rejected by the government. Uh, this is according to the opposition leader. And it also implies that actually Germany might yet make an about turn on nuclear power, which would be quite significant because it's one of the very few countries that is still focusing on phasing out nuclear power. I think Austria is one of the other ones. If Germany does do a U-turn, is there going to be an impact in energy security, perhaps in uranium markets, perhaps uh, German industry will be able to afford to remain active? What do you make of the story? Look, Germany's in a real pickle, and they're in a pickle of their own making on the one hand, although you could argue that the situation in Ukraine uh, has greatly exacerbated it. But they were ending up in a pickle anyway as a result of having made 
the big decision post Fukushima disaster to completely phase out nuclear power and to replace it with renewable technologies of various kinds. Obviously, solar and wind being the two predominant ones, a few other biofuel related things around the margins were also in the mix. But the problem is that there has been a general overpromising and underdelivering on both solar and wind power in terms of their ability to meet base power requirements. If the wind's blowing at the right speed from the right direction, yes, the wind power generation is 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 respectable and and somewhat economic. And if you're getting enough sunlight at certain times of year, you know, yes, you you can generate an awful lot of power from the tremendous uh, solar uh, panel arrays that have been built in Germany in recent years. But the problem is, it is it's kind of like a sailing ship on the high seas. If the conditions are absolutely perfect, a sailing ship can actually travel essentially as fast as a modern steamship. Uh, but that requires perfect conditions. And perfect conditions are few and far between in the real world. And so Germany's ended up with the situation where the only way they can still provide reliable base power without nuclear is dirty, economically damaging lignite coal. And the idea that somehow a country as, as modern and environmentally aware as Germany is somehow stuck with this dirty, polluting coal as the only alternative, it, it's almost astonishing that, that a country that, that is so innovative and is so well-educated um, has allowed itself into, the, into this situation. Um, and it's basically a result of people having been simply delusional, in my opinion, with respect to their their optimism that somehow, if we just threw enough money at it, uh, wind and solar would would work. Um, that has not been the case. And Germany is arguably the single biggest example in the world today that we're going to have to think very, very differently going forward about how we solve our energy trilemma. That is affordability, security, and flexibility. Uh, Germany currently has none of the above. And you see nuclear as the obvious solution, uh, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, nuclear is a proven solution. It comes with its own issues, ab absolutely. But it is a proven solution when it comes to supplying reliable, affordable base power. And this, of course, is something that the French figured out half a century ago. The part of that I don't understand is if we're going to do, what is it, 30% nuclear or whatever the UK's target is, why not go to 90-something percent? You know, why do you still want to bother with all of these wind turbines that then need all these alternative solutions to provide, you know, the storage or the backup power and so on and so forth? You know, surely if you're going to have a bunch of nuclear reactors in your country, you might as well have a bunch more and then, you know, that's the end of the story. There's no sort of complicating factors anymore, no massive debate anymore. Um, that's to some extent what the French have done. So, I mean, they're right next door. Uh, it, it, indeed, they are. I mean, if, if nuclear is the answer in terms of reliability and affordability and security, well, then what's the debate about? Uh, I, again, I think it is more complex than that. Nuclear does come with its own issues. There are challenges around waste treatment and disposal and whatnot. Um, and people point to the UK's unique geography as a very large island in a part of the world that tends to be pretty windy. And so you'd say, well, hold on. I mean, this is a natural place to at least try 
uh, to build out a substantial wind capacity. But we've been trying, and it's not working out very well. And even if the UK's favorable geography for that isn't good enough, well, then how on earth are other countries going to manage? They won't. The second story about Germany I wanted to cover was that the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the Constitutional Court of Germany, has ruled on some climate finance being illegal because of the dodgy backhanded way in which it was shuffled from, I think it was COVID aid to uh, climate change. The problem with this constitutional ruling, which was about, I think it was uh, tens of billions of euros. The problem with it is that a whole bunch of other climate change funding and even low climate change funding issues might be captured by this constitutional court ruling and might no longer be valid anymore. We're talking about 770 billion euros of government funding, which is at risk. Do you think this is just a bit of a legal issue that they'll figure out and sort out? Or do you think this is something that climate investors need to worry about? Well, it certainly is a legal issue, but keep in mind how moralistic and legalistic Germans tend to be by cultural orientation. And they they don't like bait and switch. They don't like sleight of hand and hocus pocus uh, being played by their government. If money is raised and dedicated to a specific application, it should only be used for that specific application. And indeed, this is one reason why uh, many Germans are so angry with the, the European Central Bank, because they're, they're doing so many things that arguably violate the spirit, and in some cases, arguably violate the letter uh, of the Maastricht Treaty and the ECB Charter. But here we are uh, in a situation where, unlike giving the ECB a pass so far, the German Constitutional Court has kind of put its foot down on this one and set a very important precedent that, no, you cannot simply redirect public funds from Project A to Project B. You, and, and so you're right. If you kind of universalize that principle, there is a huge amount of public funding uh, that may no longer be available for all manner of projects, including some that are related to renewable energy infrastructure. So now watch this space. Uh, again, Germany's in a dilemma largely of its own making. Perhaps it's almost refreshing for the constitutional court to, to, to basically say, we need to be honest with ourselves and stop playing games here. It might really help Germans to focus their minds and solve this problem they've got. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Sam Volkring, our cryptocurrency and AI expert for our weekly week in review. You've informed me that he's up to something. He's got something planned for us in the next few weeks. Can you tell us anything about it? Uh, I can a little bit. Uh, we're always excited uh, to see what Sam has been working on. Um, this is particularly exciting. I would say it's probably the most interesting, innovative thing he's ever done. And that's saying a lot uh, when you're talking about Sam. So, uh, yes, this one has to do with artificial intelligence, but in a way that you probably haven't thought of. I'm going to kind of leave it there, but before the end of the month, um, we're going to announce something. Well, I should say Sam's going to announce something very exciting indeed. Well, I'll try and pry it out of him in next week's video. Thanks very much for joining us, everyone at home. And John, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for watching. And I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.